Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, comrades, and welcome back to the Eastern Border. I'm back from Balkans, and uh, once again, thanks to the Red Africa Travel for that. It was an awesome experience during my uh, working vacation or something. Yeah, I've skipped on a lot of politics, so this is going to be a nice little recent events catch-up episode. We're going straight back to Russia and Alaska after that, and um, doing quite a lot of interesting things, because I now have a lot of materials on former Yugoslavia, and I definitely had to do an episode about Tito and Stalin's split, after all. Got some first-hand information on that thing. But first, first, as this is being recorded, I would like to congratulate today's great man and um, person who certainly deserves your applause, both um, sarcastic and kind of not so, in a way, because Mr. Vladimir Putin is turning 68 today. Yeah, something like that. And as we know, he's going to stay in power at least until 2024, and that means he's going to be 72 at that point. Well, that just means he has a long way to go, because, you know, Brezhnev lived until he was 75, and Putin now has ruled a bit longer than Brezhnev, so we have, like, all the human possibilities to see Mr. Putin living a long, long time. And uh, while you're listening to this, I recommend you pause this uh, audio for a second and just go Google up quickly Vladimir Putin and get his most recent photo and ask yourself if a 68-year-old man who has granddaughters, confirmed granddaughters, normally looks like that. And uh, specifically, if you can get a close-up on him, check out his um, area of skin around his ears on the hairline part of things. And um, you judge for yourselves whether or not all the plastic surgery conspiracies are true. Also, another thing, uh, be sure to Google up Vladimir Putin height, and uh, you'll understand that um, a man who's officially 1 meter 68 centimeters, I don't even know how much that is in feet, but that's below 5 foot 7, because 5 foot 7 is 173. 5 foot 6? With some inches or something? I don't know. Uh, approximately 5 foot 6. Uh, yeah, um, see, Dmitry Medvedev is 1.63 centimeters, the same height as Chuck Norris. However, if you would look at any pictures 
on the internet, you will see that Dmitry Medvedev, even though he's 1.63, he's taller than Putin, and if you look at Putin's gait, then you'll also notice that he certainly wears special shoes. So we have a 68-year-old man being a dictator and and um, pretending to be taller than he is because this macho image has to be upkept at all times, at any cost, of course. That's for the fun stuff. Now it's time to catch up on the whole political situation here. Uh, one thing, though, I might sound a bit laggy because I really need to see a dentist because a part of my tooth crumbled and I need to fix this. I don't feel really comfortable talking as... Half of my tongue is a bit swollen, but I'll go and fix that up, so I'll be back to normal if there are any issues at the given moment. At any rate, well, we shall start with the most recent news from Belarus, and um, even though Macron, the president of France, recently visited both Latvia and Lithuania, and he spoke with Tikhanovskaya, leader of Belarusian opposition, that's not the thing that I want to contrast and compare at this given point. You see, last Saturday, October the 4th, thousands of people in Minsk took part in a protest march demanding the release of political prisoners. The demonstrators marched from the downtown to the detention center at Okresnya Street, where those arrested during the opposition protests are being held. Law enforcement at this point brought out water cannons against protesters during the march, spraying them with plain water as well as orange paint, and the water was extremely cold, obviously. Mobile internet access was restricted in the city center and several subway stations along the march's route were closed. Police officials in Minsk reported 10 arrests during the rally. The Vyasnya, or Spring, Human Rights Center collected reports of more than 40 arrests in different cities across Belarus, which also saw protest rallies on Sunday. However, these protest actions are continuing since presidential elections of August the 9th, but at this point with the, with the water cannon, well, you see, something happened, and I'm going to contrast this a bit with the things happening in Kyrgyzstan, but... As Alexander Nevzorov brilliantly said two days ago in um, his occasional news show, there is a little kind of a unknown quality to various police officers and various Siloviki or, well, officials of strength institutions, such as, like, you know, Russia's analog of National Guard, which is used to beat up protesters, and Belarus is too, that they can instantly sense the intent of the protesting people up to coming at about 200 meters from them which is about 200 yards, basically whether or not they can do these criminal orders that they've been given, or, you know, they're just coming there to get beaten up. But the trick about this water cannon thing is that normally the protests in Belarus are peaceful and nice and calm, but this time when the water cannon was used against little kids and old ladies and everything like that, yeah, people got a bit uppity. Just a smidget, right? And uh, they charged the water cannon... There were water cannons in different parts of the city, but in one part of Minsk, water cannon was being charged, and it got basically trashed, and various kind of separate details of this water cannon were removed, thus making it totally useless, and some police officers who were trying to protect said water cannon, they were um, sprayed themselves and uh, a bit beaten, you know, the, the usual stuff. What's the most important part is that um, in the following day, in the Belarusian national TV... A PR person for the Belarusian police appeared. Her surname was Chemodanova. Her surname literally means a traveling bag. Person of the traveling bag, right? She professionally asked the protesters to return some important parts from the water cannons, otherwise they will not be able to use the said water cannon in the next week's protest actions to um, disrupt the protest actions. 
that is quite funny, but that's not even the funniest part. The funniest part is that she um, ended up her kind of announcement to the public by stating that if they do not return the parts from the broken down water cannon, which was used to, well, totally damage all the people who were in these actions of violent protests, right, who turned violent because of the water cannon, quote, the cops will have to pay for the parts from their own pockets and they're poor already, so you should have some sympathy for these people. And her final line was just amazing. She said, I benevolently ask you of this as a mother, because this will put a strain on their families. I don't even know what's going on, because this is total insanity, of course. Because, again, I asked you sometime before, for how long can you continue beating people up? And at this point, you understand that it probably will gonna go on for a bit of a time, you know, because this is turning to routine. But this turns us into our second news from another country where we can totally compare and contrast. And I'll get to kind of more interesting subjects as we go on, but um, we have to turn to Kyrgyzia. Or Kyrgyzstan. I guess it's Kyrgyzstan in English. You see, those guys, they didn't go to protests to um, get beaten up. Oh, no, 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 no. People in Kyrgyzia, which is also one of the former Soviet republics, one of the Stans, which is sandwiched right next to Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, you know, that end of the planet on the other side of the Caspian Sea. Oh, boy. Those guys. Well, I think they just gave the rest of the planet and the rest of the world in general a nice little master class on how to organize a riot, how to protest, and um, how to turn a revolution into a six-hour uneventful event, which ended up with some wounded, but at least no one's dead. You see, Kyrgyzia, or Kyrgyzstan, I'm just gonna call it Kyrgyzia, because that's how we call it in Latvian, and that's how they request to be called themselves, they have a nice little proud tradition of tribalism, and also involves politics, because this isn't their first coup. They've had, like, um... Three at this point, uh, starting from the year 2000 or something, maybe four, I don't even know. Because they're the only country in the whole Stan region, which is not run by a totalitarian dictator, who basically renames the weeks of the year, yes, all 52 of them, uh, after his own family members and doesn't rename the kind of, you know, days of the week as well. Uh, Kyrgyzia has a very, very strong tribal political infrastructure where people basically running for office are supported by either the southern part of the country or the northern part of the country, and they're, well, basically no one has been in power for such a long time as to guarantee a constant political support for themselves. Which is pretty fun, because they um, are essentially an almost functioning democracy, and why I say almost is because, well... It more or less reminds you of something that would happen in, I don't know, early 16th century, maybe. It's kind of like very um, early tries at this. But hey, they're doing fine, and they truly do know how to throw their own coups. Because last one just lasted for six hours, with basically ending up with the, the recent election results being nullified and everyone just resigning peacefully and just running away from the very, very, very angry mob. Because you see, Kyrgyzia held parliamentary elections recently on October the 4th. According to the official results, parties close to, well, previous president Soron Bayen Benkov, his family members and other powerful officials were the only ones that made it into the parliament. This has happened before because, well, uh, sadly, in Kyrgyzia, people who lead these revolutions and then win the subsequent elections, despite their massive amounts of uh, constitutional changes, yeah, those guys turn into a bit of a, well, they try to pull off another little Putin thing that doesn't really do much for them. 
Because in Kyrgyzia, like I said, proud traditions almost like Eastern France. Well, France of the East in this case, because France is also known for basically throwing up a tantrum and burning cars every Tuesday. But hey, what do you know? On October the 5th, opposition demonstrators took off to the streets, um, to the surprise of no one, and were violently dispersed by riot police. Nonetheless, they got really angry and pissed off and decided to take matters into their own hands and smash the police and do that thing once again. So overnight, from the October 5th to the 6th, protesters, instead of just peacefully protesting, waving flags and balloons and everything, oh no! They went straight to the headshot. They didn't care about all these niceties and they went out there with, with bricks in their hands ready to smash some bones in to anyone who would stand in their path. Violent riots. The good stuff, you know. The one that later history books would write upon. And I'm just saying this with such a cheerful attitude because, like I said, it's not even the first case in Kyrgyzstan when this happens. So, well, might be news to you. And in context with other recent news, this is pretty, well, kind of interesting stuff. But for people like me, who's been following all these news, yeah, it's just another textbook example of Kyrgyz revolts. But at this point, I think that people should learn from it. We're going to have a comment a bit later on from a political scientist to whom I kind of don't agree on some points, but you'll hear about that. Anyhow, overnight on October 5th to the 6th, protesters managed to seize several key government buildings, including the so-called White House, which includes the Parliament and the offices of the presidential administration. In response, Prime Minister Kubayek Bortonov resigned from the office. And, of course, like I said before, election officials invalidated the contested voting results. That said, the current president hasn't given enough power, but that's just a matter of time, really, because no one cares. They just basically released everyone, including their previous president, who was a political prisoner of the, well, the new president, as it sometimes happens, but hey, who knows. And then we have a comment from my colleagues of Medusa, who spoke with a political scientist and Central Asia expert, Arkady Dubnov. And he comments that, quote, For me personally, such developments in Bishkek, which is the capital of Kyrgyzia, were unexpected. But the situation in Kyrgyzstan is changing rather quickly. The authorities and those who oppose them step on the same rake every time. Bloody clashes arise as a result, which culminate in a coup. This rake is an underestimation, a misunderstanding of the nature of what's happening in the country, an inability to analyze and predict the course of events even one and a half steps ahead. Everything that happens in Kyrgyzstan happens because of the stupidity of politicians and the authorities. It is exclusively domestic in nature. There is no influence from Moscow or Beijing. The current president is the fifth president of Kyrgyzstan. It so happens that the rise to power of a Kyrgyzstani president is always associated with some other paradigm shift in the republic, which is essentially divided into two parts, the South and North. There are representatives of the South and North in the government, and they don't like to talk about this in Kyrgyzstan, but it is always the case. The current president is considered a representative of the Southern clans, because, like I said, they have their own clan system, still very strong, and kind of like traditional rural Albania with a very strong patriarchal clan-based society. Current President Yebenyenkov has been running the country for only three years. The country is very poor, there are no opportunities for obtaining new investments and paying off debts. Bishkek is bogged down in a big pit of debt, most of which is owed to China. The country is in a very difficult situation, specifically after confronting the COVID pandemic. Because, you know, according to official data, and this is common for me, among Kyrgyzstan's population of 6.5 million people, around... 48,000 people have contracted COVID-19 over the course of pandemic so far, and more than 1,000 have died. 
Over the summer, hospitals treating COVID patients were overcrowded, and the country also has one of the highest morbidity rates among medical workers. So, you know, not a very fun place to catch COVID in. And this played a big role. Kyrgyzstan is one of the countries where internal political turmoil is linked to the consequences of the fight against COVID. So, now I come to the question of why do the election results anger opposition protesters? See, the recent parliament elections, the results of which uh, caused such a turbulent upsurge, were the first during President Yebenov's presidency. He used to be a fairly balanced politician. He hoped that by declaring himself at arm's length from certain political parties, he would be able to ensure a kind of a fair count of the votes. But, sadly, for some reason... <clears throat> some reason, quote-unquote, eyebrows moving rapidly, he did not take into account that the people in the country can't help but see the party led by his younger brother as under his control. Well, no surprises here, really. As it turned out, this party, Birindik, exploited significant administrative resources despite its formal separation from the resident. The second party... Menekim Kyrgyzstan was headed by a figure well-known in the country, the former deputy head of the customs service, Raim Martanov. No secret that he made a huge fortune thanks to a corruption scheme at the country's borders. He wasn't convicted, and moreover, he was given the opportunity to establish a party, which, thanks to a large amount of money, by the country's standards at least, managed to buy hundreds of thousands of votes. The small sums that people received were enough to partially pay off their debts or pay for housing and utilities. The idea of political responsibility isn't close to the people for obvious reasons, because Kyrgyzstan is, well, extra poor. The two parties received the maximum number of votes. If the elections were considered valid, then the southern clan would have had an absolute majority in the parliament. They couldn't do anything but anger those who didn't cross the parliamentary threshold. And they were the ones who urged people to take the streets. Exploiting administrative resources, underestimating what allowing corrupt officials into the race would lead to, and the irresponsible behavior of protestant leaders led to, well, guess what? An obvious chaos or disorder. And Mr. Dubnov states that what happened during the night could be considered kind of a, a sub-coup, kind of between a revolution and a coup. The real problem is that the protesters don't have a political leader who can express the general opinion. As of right now, the party leaders are young people whose names mean nothing. Their responsibility and experience also played a role in what happened. Events involving the overthrow of the current president could be considered a coup. The authorities have turned out to be powerless when facing pressure from the street. Facing the crowd's commitment to freeing the former president, prime minister and deputies from prison, because they all were imprisoned, because such things happen, and before the security forces going over to the side of the people, well, you know, it's kind of interesting, because that's totally powerless from the authorities. Of course, there are elements of a coup, but the president hasn't given up his power at the moment. Or he might have at the point of you hearing this, but, well, at the point of recording, he's kind of struggling, but that's totally going to go away. And now, Dubno's comments on the Belarus situation, which I don't really compare, because Medus asked him that many people are comparing events in Kyrgyzstan to the protests in Belarus. Is this a fair comparison? And here Mr. Dubnov states, quote, I think the protests in Kyrgyzstan and Belarus can't be compared. It's like comparing apples to oranges. Ukraine's former president Leonid Kuchma had such a book. Ukraine is not Russia. So, I will say, Kyrgyzstan is not Belarus. The people are completely different. Election campaigning in Kyrgyzstan can include one of the political parties marching around the country on horseback. It's perfectly normal there, since the Kyrgyz learned to ride horses from childhood. If such a march took place in the forests of Belarus, everyone would come to the conclusion that foreigners had arrived who wanted to change the situation in the country using their webs. The Kyrgyz are more heated up. They have different temperament. Showdowns, including political ones, take place between fighting men. Protesters and law enforcement can hash things out, so that's why such excess occurs. 
In Belarus, the protests are much more peaceful. For example, in Kyrgyzstan, taking children to a protest, which is a normal thing in Belarus, is a huge risk. It's a sign of irresponsible parenting. And now I'd have to say that even though here we can clearly look at a crazy coup happening in Belarus and everything turning out to be stranger than we're normally thinking about this, I think that the Belarusians certainly, even though it's apples to oranges, should learn a bit about temper, which they certainly have, at least, when it comes to, well, making sure that uh, the water thrower things that harm innocent people and that fighting against total police brutality kind of go off, you know. There might be people who might be just screaming about how only peaceful protests and totally legal stuff are necessary in such occasions, but I've listened to enough of Revolution's podcast to understand that, well, sometimes, sometimes you just need to pick up your local boulder or a brick and um, be ready to go and smash some heads in, otherwise, as we see in Belarus, nothing has really changed since August. And it can be easy for me to, to speak here from Latvia, but remember that in 1991, there was a very real risk of um, our country getting swallowed back in in the USSR, and we went on and built barricades. You can't really presume that everything's going to happen peacefully and police is going to be cooperative and the things are going to get down smoothly. No, no, no. I think that at some point, a violent protest and some urge of violence and threats and physical violence to the people in power is necessary if you want to make some qualitative changes to your political situation, especially in tyrannical countries and when tyrants are involved. Because once again, peaceful protests are nice and we all feel fun and good cheering after them. But the real results are, sadly, achieved by men with guns, or at least bricks, or big, big sticks. However, this also brings us to uh, the sad part of today's episode, which is, of course, about war. It's easy to root for protests and someone fighting for their own liberties. But it's hard to say anything positive and anything righteous and anything good about an actual war. That's mostly pointless, to be honest. Sadly, that's, I guess, the biggest event so so far, and you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the war between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Technically, between Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh, even though that's slowly turning into a proxy war between Russia and Turkey. But that's the Eastern border material. And we have to have a little background knowledge on that one also. You see, when we talk about Nagorno-Karabakh, or Astarh, as they call themselves, we have to talk about, literally, the longest-running war on former Soviet soil. I mean, it is somewhat comparable to the whole Balkan crisis, but this thing has been going on since the late 1980s, and there's been a conflict running all over the place. And um, from the very active war that happened from 1991 to 1994, somewhere between 20,000 to 35,000 people were killed, and made refugees of about a million people. The self-declared Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, officially named, as I told you just before, Arstakh. Arstakh, I think. Well, it has close ties to Armenia, because, well, everyone there basically uses Armenian money as currency, and it's basically a satellite of Armenia. Even though this happened as a result of their war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, even though Azerbaijan had a, a population advantage but they didn't have the military advantage because the Armenians were much, much better prepared back then. And right now, even though the populations are 
vastly different with Azerbaijan having about 10 million people and uh, Armenia having about 2.5 million people. Back then it was more like 10 million people versus 6.5 million people because there have been like massive, massive population dwindling in Armenia. And now Azerbaijan is under the influence of Turkey and all of this stuff and... Um, well, Erdogan has his own plans of rebuilding the Ottoman Empire and isn't a huge fan of Armenians, which I remind you uh, suffered from the hands of the Turks uh, just after Turkey got independence, and there's this Armenian genocide thing that we need to talk about at some point, which was done by the group that uh, some of you might know the name of, called the Young Turks, and yes, even though some of my liberal listeners might recognize the Young Turks as being a very pro-liberal American uh, journalist group where they... Turkish anchors and everything, which were basically Turkish immigrants to the United States. The Young Turks were also the name of the group, after which this news group is named of, that conducted a massive genocide against Armenians in, at that point, Turkish um, soil, as the deportations and murders included. Well, the Young Turks at the time uh, decided that, hey, we need to solve this Armenian question and have a Turkey for Turkic people, based on Kemal Ataturk's ideas which is always nice, even though Kemal Ataturk later had a lot of issues with so-called Young Turks. And the modern-day Young Turks, that is their one thing that you can prod at them, and which is why I do not recommend you taking whatever they say about American politics extremely seriously, because they still completely and totally deny any Armenian genocide from happening, and they are very proud of the Young Turks, which are otherwise, besides the genocide, seen as reformers and road builders. But that's kind of a sidetracking of this thing, just saying that if an organization would come up and call themselves the Soviet News or uh, the Gestapo Newsly or, or something of that sort, right? You know, you'd look at them with some suspicion because that's uh, obviously has some ties with uh, dubious groups at best and the Young Turks, even though they're, as Turkey denies any Armenian genocide, even though the Young Turks are seen as political reformers for the Turkish people, yeah, even the modern-day Young Turks deny the Armenian genocide and claim that it never happened. Have fun there, boys. But, like I said, Erdogan has shady deals with Azerbaijan, and Israel sells Azerbaijan weaponry, uh, because Azerbaijan is kind of against Iran due to the Sunni-Shia split. At the same time, Armenia is a country that has previously got a lot of support from Putin, and their previous president openly congratulated Putin on annexing Crimea. Armenia is one of the countries that has recognized the Crimea as a sovereign state, uh, being a part of Russia later on, and they are basically uh, very much a Russian puppet, so we're having a Turkish puppet fighting a Russian puppet here. But uh, Russian and Armenian relations have gone colder recently since their new president, Pashinyan, was more of a democratic person, had tried to break off from Russia's influence, therefore Russia isn't overtly helping out. However, he still congratulated Lukashenko on being elected. So, it's a shady situation where, uh, kind of, from one side you have a very pro-Russian government, who previously used to be very, very pro-Russian government, trying to make some overtures and trying to turn Armenia into a fully democratic state, and a lot of Russian opposition, these are basically portraying this conflict, um, one of the oppositionaries that I actually respect and listen to, Yulia Latinina, to which I had to disagree, a lot of Russian oppositionaries paint this conflict 
as a kind of a thing between Islamic Jihad versus democracy and Russia isn't helping because the new president of Armenia is making reforms and Armenia is real democracy. Well, I do have to say Armenia is not a real democracy and their new president really is still at least no friend to Ukraine, which means no friend to the Baltic states because we're tied together with Ukraine on this one. At least me personally, as I went there, I'm definitely tied to that stuff. So... This whole conflict is a mess because there are, kind of, as I see it, no real positive sides. But back to the original conflict, you see this Republic of Arstach, the Gorno-Karabakh for everyone else, well, it isn't even recognized by Armenia itself. In fact, it's recognized only by Transnistria, um, I think Abkhazia and South Ossetia, all of which are basically Russian satellite states, acquired by conquest, one from Moldova and two from Georgia. Well, Prussia's previous attempts of, um, well, expanding their already mega-vast territory at the expense of smaller, weaker post-Soviet nations, which is always fun. At the same time, Azerbaijan insists that this area is its own territory. Basically, Nagorno-Karabakh and the surrounding regions, because Nagorno-Karabakh, the Republic of Arstakh, is an enclave inside of Azerbaijan, which is like 80% Armenian, but Armenia also kind of controls the surrounding regions of the Republic and a corridor that basically provides a Latin bridge from the enclave to Armenia. At the same time, on the opposite side of Armenia, there's an enclave of Azerbaijan, which borders Turkey and Armenia, and there have been, like, thoughts about trading it, but that's going nowhere because Armenians and Azerbaijanis just hate each other, and as recently as, well... Yesterday, there, there have been massing, massive, massive fights between Armenians and Azerbaijanis inside Russia, where most of those diasporas live. Through all of this, this is a bit, well, crazy. In general, Azerbaijan wants Nagorno-Karabakh back, and they don't want to give up a piece of their land. Meanwhile, Armenians are painting this as an ethnic cleansing conflict yet again. This is totally crazy. And this stalemate, well, regularly flares up, as it has in the past week, but the latest escalation became more serious when Armenia mobilized its military, and Azerbaijan partially mobilized. What started this conflict and what are the risks of the renewed fighting? And who has a bit more right things to go on there, but like I said, this is going to be a condensed information from a lot of political commentators on the region, a lot of them Russian opposition reason they are sort of more pro-Armenian, Meanwhile, the West tends to be more pro-Azerbaijani, and uh, it's a huge mess, and people are dying already, 2,000 are dead, okay? Nothing good can happen there, there's literally no, no solution but just bringing, just forcing them to swap the enclaves or something, there, there needs to be some United Nations peacekeeping force, because both sides have now claimed that um, it's a bit too late for talks. Which brings me back to the history of that region. And sorry for all this long detour, it's just that this conflict is um, as complex as it is, well, unnecessary, and has a lot of Soviet ties leading to it. You see, Armenia's presence in the area, traditionally understood today to encompass Nagorno-Karabakh, dates back roughly three millennia. By the late 11th century, the territory was claimed by various Armenian kingdoms, though a lot of Azerbaijani historians dispute these accounts. And yes, yes, we're going back thousands of years again, like a thousand of years, because that's always the case in these super old conflicts. 
After Turkic tribes conquered most of Transcaucasia in the 13th century, local Armenian rulers spent the next few hundred years as the subjects of different Turkic and Persian states. The cycle repeated until the 19th century, when the Russian Empire consumed most of the region. Throughout all this time, Armenian and Muslim communities inhabiting the areas now demarcated Armenia and Azerbaijan lived as neighbors, often sharing the same cities and villages. Modern ethnonationalism also arrived in Transcaucasia by the late 19th century, as Armenian, Azerbaijani, and Georgian movements fueled sometimes open clashes and pogroms, including in the area of Karabakh. During World War I, relations between the Armenian and Azerbaijani communities soured, especially after tens of thousands of Armenians fled to territories controlled by Russia to escape a genocide perpetrated by the Young Turks that killed roughly half a million people. The surviving Armenians were largely inclined not to distinguish between Transcaucasian Muslims, which were future Azerbaijanis, and their recent oppressors, the Turks. A disposition reinforced by the fact that Azerbaijani ethnic leaders considered themselves, well, guess what, Turks. In the spring of 1918, a year after Tsarist Russia's collapse and several weeks after Soviet's withdrawal from the First World War, Turkey launched an offensive in Transcaucasia, this time against Armenian nationalists, not the Russian Imperial Army. The military campaign coincided with rising ethnic tensions throughout the region. In late March 1918, Baku's Azerbaijani majority, and Baku is a city which we mentioned a lot in Stalin series, mind you, because a lot of nice little oil reserves there, majority clashed with ethnic Armenians who then made up about 20% of the city's population, though they enjoyed the support of local Bolshevik government and its militias. The unrest culminated in the murder of 12,000 Azeris, according to Azerbaijani historians, and five to six times fewer casualties among Armenians. To this day, Azerbaijani historiography officially refers to this violence as a genocide. So, you know, it's not only the Armenians who have been suffering a genocide, but like Dan Carlin said, if you look deep enough into history, you'll find everyone committing genocide against everyone else. In late May 1918, Georgia, Azerbaijan, and Armenia each declared their independence. The territory, now understood to be Nagorno-Karabakh, home primarily to ethnic Armenians when it was a part of the Russian Empire, had been part of Yelizabetopol Governorate, which, together with the Baku Governorate, combined to form Azerbaijan. Unable to withstand the Turkish army's attacks and threatened with total occupation, the fledgling Armenian state agreed to numerous territorial concessions. Nagorno-Karabakh would become part of Turkey's regional ally, Azerbaijan, through the Caucasian Islamic army created by the Turks was still fighting the Bolsheviks for control over these lands. In this chaos, troops of the Triple Entente tried to stop the Turkish army's advance by seizing the city of Baku. In September 1918, units of the Islamic army occupied Baku and executed, according to most conservative estimates, at least 10,000 local Armenians. Turkish and Azerbaijani forces also seized Nagorno-Karabakh. A few weeks later, however, the Ottoman Empire exited the First World War and started withdrawing its troops, including its forces in Transcaucasia, which allowed the ethnic Armenians to regain control over Nagorno-Karabakh. At first, the British filled the vacuum left by the retreating Turks. In 1919, London tried unsuccessfully to convince Nagorno-Karabakh's Armenian community to recognize Azerbaijani's territorial claims. Great Britain, you see, had hoped to develop the area as an oil outpost on the Caspian Sea. Meanwhile, Azerbaijani troops launched a new offensive in the region that included a campaign of ethnic cleansing. Facing total defeat, Karabakh's Armenians agreed to recognize Azerbaijan's authority, albeit with several preconditions and reservations. In the spring of 1920, Armenian units launched an ill-fated counteroffensive that ended tragically for the local community when Azerbaijani forces repelled the attack and responded by virtually destroying the Armenian sector of Shusha, the Gornokarabakh's capital city. Between several hundred and several thousand Armenians died in the subsequent ethnic riot. 
as you see, this place is full of fun, rainbows, sunshines, and overall happiness and tolerance. The war ended when the Bolsheviks seized power in both Armenia and Azerbaijan. Karabakh Armenians hoped the region would be unified with Armenia, but the Reds decided, after prolonged internal party discussions, to leave it as part of the Azerbaijan Soviet Socialist Republic. And there's a, quite a lot of evidence that, uh, well, Uncle Joe, at that point the People's Commissar for Nationalities, as he was a Georgian himself, and, you know, Georgia was also part of the Soviet Union with all the, I had an episode on conquest of Georgia, yeah, he heavily supported the decision. It's believed that up to 94% of the people living in the newly formed Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast were ethnic Armenians. To complicate matters further, Soviet officials redrew the map to remove its common border with Armenia, making the region an enclave inside Azerbaijani territory. Until just before the Soviet Union collapsed, there was no open armed conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh, but the ethnic tensions responsible for past violence never disappeared. Armenian community leaders repeatedly petitioned Moscow to transfer Nagorno-Karabakh to the Armenian SSR, and there were rallies in Yerevan advocating this initiative. The campaign intensified as soon as Perestroika began, by which point there were 350,000 Armenians residing in the Azerbaijani territory, not counting Nagorno-Karabakh, and roughly 200,000 Azerbaijanis in Armenia. Three-quarters of the people living in Nagorno-Karabakh were ethnic Armenians. Following several small ethnic clashes in early 1988, local deputies in the Gorno-Karabakh requested the transfer of their region to Armenian territory, echoing the demands of massive demonstrations in Yerevan. By the summer, violent confrontations had become routine. A series of reciprocal pro-pogroms across Armenia and Azerbaijan, because why not? Why not kill your neighbors? Oh, let's just kill our neighbors. Let's commit ethnic genocide towards whomever's living next door to us, because that's what we all do. Hey, isn't that fun? Hmm, yeah. Well, in general, this led to a mass exodus for Armenians from Azerbaijan and Azeris from Armenia, as people in both ethnic groups increasingly viewed each other as foreigners. Afraid to close the republic's boundaries and set a dangerous precedent, officials in Moscow failed to adopt a coherent policy. Basically, they did literally nothing. The Kremlin declared a state of emergency and effectively removed Karabakh from Baku's control, but only for a very short while. In January 1990, in response to a pogrom carried out by Azerbaijani nationalists in Baku that killed several dozen Armenians, the Soviet army entered the city, leading to clashes that resulted in a hundred more deaths. These incidents only increased tensions in Nagorno-Karabakh, where genuine battles started taking place at the boundary with Azerbaijan in 1990. After the USSR's collapse, the conflict became a full-fledged war. In the summer of 1994, after six months of the heaviest fighting, a ceasefire was finally reached. With Armenia's support, the self-proclaimed Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, and again, they only won this because at that point Armenia had more advantage. Well, Azerbaijan has oil, Armenia doesn't. Azerbaijan has money and international support way more than Armenia has. Armenia's best buddy was Russia, but um, not anymore. So, fun times, yeah. Anyhow, with Armenia's support, the self-proclaimed Nagorno-Karabakh Republic had managed not only to maintain control over its territory as a former autonomous oblast, but also to break through to the Armenian border, ceasing to be an enclave. Karabakh Armenians also succeeded in occupying several towns inside Azerbaijan near the boundary. In total, the war claimed the lives of, well, a lot of soldiers. More than 15,000 soldiers and approximately the same amount of civilians. The cessation of major combat, however, did not lead to real peace. On average, the fighting along the boundary, every year, ever since, roughly 30 people have died. In 2016, the two sides used heavily artillery for the first time. And now, well, you have to sort of look at all the situation here. 
here I'm using my opposition sources and let's try to take a better views on, well, which one is correct, Karabakh or Arstakh, and who's kind of more right in the war. And about the name itself, because this hall is Balkan's level of mess, okay? For one, historically there was a province of the ancient kingdom of Armenia called Arstakh, in the territory of which corresponds generally, but not really, to what is now considered Nagorno-Karabakh. The self-declared republic uses Arstakh as its second name. The word Karabakh first appeared in the Middle Ages after the arrival of Turkic tribes in Transcaucasia. The most widespread theory maintains that it combines the Turkic word for black, kara, and the Persian word for garden, bach. Although some researchers question this claim, arguing that the first syllable also has Persian origins. According to the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic's constitution, the names Arstakh and Nagorno-Karabakh are equivalent, but only the Armenians use Arstakh, which makes Nagorno-Karabakh the more neutral toponym. To the east of Nagorno-Karabakh, there is a flatland known to some as the Karabakh Plain, which is now controlled mainly by Azerbaijan. So, well, again, even this, even which word to use, even that is contested here. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss So, what caused the latest escalation in violence? You see, outbreaks of new fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh are, again, unsurprisingly, the result of domestic politics in Armenia and Azerbaijan. This is more true in Baku, however, given that Armenia has no strategic goals that would require the resumption of hostilities in the disputed territory. Armenia effectively won the war in the early 1990s, and today's status quo suits Yerevan just fine. Military advancements in both countries also add tension to the conflict zone, with each new round in an ongoing arms race where, like I said, Baku clearly wields greater resources, and the Azerbaijani authorities have touted their apparent military superiority. Baku likely hoped that Armenia's new leaders, who took power after the revolution in 2018, 
would agree to negotiate new terms in the Karabakh. These expectations were based in part of the fact that Nikolai Pashinyan, Armenia's new prime minister, publicly supported the plan in the early 2000s to restore Azerbaijani control over the areas captured by the Karabakh Republican forces in the early 1990s, but without surrendering the Karabakh itself, in exchange for agreeing to talks about the self-declared republic status. But this settlement drafted by international mediators, who sadly have done literally nothing and their peace talks have been uh, one of the more uh, useless cases of international support to anyone ever, and um, well, this OSCE mission there, which is sort of about peace talks, has been proven to be basically you pay for some people to sit in chairs and do nothing and just pretend to be in some high positions, and out of all the people here, they are responsible for most deaths, and I hate them with terrible, terrible passion, but that's a neat side note. Anyway, these international mediators, as they do, again, nothing and get paid for it by the United Nations, this settlement is a controversial in media. Guess what? Because they can't even make a fucking agreement. They don't do anything and haven't done anything for all of my lifetime, basically. Hell, I was born in 1989. This conflict's there since 1988. And the international communities, observers and peacekeepers haven't done jack shit. Anyway, when Levon Tjer Petrosian endorsed the plan in 1987, it cost him his presidency. Politicians who made their careers in Karabakh replaced him, and the so-called Karabakh party, which has dominated Armenian politics for the past 20 years, still categorically opposes any concessions to Azerbaijan. When Pashinyan took office in 2018, it seemed Armenia's political consensus might shift on the Nagorno-Karabakh issue, but the new prime minister quickly demonstrated that he had no intention of changing course in the region. Shortly into his tenure, Pashinyan, the, again, Prime Minister of Armenia, visited Stepanhert, the Nagorno-Karabakh Republic's capital, and proclaimed Karabakh is Armenia, arguing that Yerevan has no lands that can be given to Azerbaijan. Meanwhile, the collapse in world oil prices has precipitated economic crisis in Azerbaijan, where the International Monetary Fund predicts a 2.2% GDP contraction in 2020. Four years ago, just before finding loss that escalated significantly in Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijani's economy similarly fell on hard times. In the 2016 crisis, the Azerbaijani authorities tried to mobilize patriotic sentiment with a short victorious military campaign in Nagorno-Karabakh, seemingly in order to compensate for the hardships caused by falling oil prices. In the four-day war back then, the Azerbaijan so-called liberated small tracts of land lost in the early 1990s. And now let's get on to the third parties and... Uh, Russia and Turkey. See, Russia has generally pursued a two-track policy, because Moscow is bound by obligations to Armenia under the Collective Security Treaty, and together with the United States and France, simultaneously remains a primary mediator in negotiations, sitting on the same totally powerless, impotent committee that theoretically does negotiations but does nothing, to resolve the Gordokarabakh conflict. These dogs have been deadlocked for decades, however, no surprises here, and the mediator's main goal now is to keep the conflict frozen to prevent further outbreaks of violence. The status quo clearly benefits Armenia, and Russia supports Yerevan with arms sales. But Moscow also sells weapons to Azerbaijan and endeavors to maintain normal relations with Baku. The situation imposes certain limits of the fighting in the Gordokarabakh. Because the breakaway republic is now contiguous with Armenia, Yerevan can freely build up its military forces near the border for sustained assistance to its neighbor. Either Azerbaijan or its ally, Turkey, would have to attack Armenia directly in order to break this chain, which is unrealistic given Moscow's mutual defense pact with Yerevan. Like I said, all the fighting for this reason happens only in this Nagorno-Karabakh territory, which all the world admits is a part of Azerbaijan, except Armenia, which considers it's their own, and most Armenians live there, but technically... 
All the fighting happens within Azerbaijan between Nagorno-Karabakh, which is supported by the Armenian army, and Azerbaijan, which is trying to take control over what they call their territory. But yeah, the last and most serious fighting before this whole war thing broke out was in July 2020. Yeah, this year. Though both sides quickly agreed to the truce. The Collective Security Treaty only guarantees members protection in the event of external aggression. As a result, Armenia can operate almost openly in Nagorno-Karabakh and in the Azerbaijani areas still controlled by the Breakaway Republic, but for the past quarter century it has been unable to annex the territory outright, let alone recognize Nagorno-Karabakh's independence, though this issue surfaces occasionally in the Armenian parliament. Both sides rely on alliances with most powerful states, impeding their freedom to pursue decisive military and diplomatic goals. This balance of power serves as a guarantee against escalations that would turn the conflict into a full-scale war. But we're getting there. Turkey has been intervening in the conflict on Azerbaijan's side since the early 1990s, but direct military involvement isn't an option because it would challenge Yerevan's defense pact with Moscow and defy diplomatic pledges made by Russia, the United States and the EU to prevent the resumption of large-scale fighting in the region. Ankara has nevertheless waged a hybrid war against Armenia and used the same tactics to target Russia's allies in the Middle East and Africa. These hostile actions have not, however, made it impossible to maintain decent, somewhat decent I would say, relations with Russia. For Turkey, which officials in Yerevan say redeployed its so-called proxies from Idlib in Syria to Nagorno-Karabakh, the Armenia-Azerbaijani conflict is just another front in the same hybrid war it's fighting in Syria and Libya. Ankara may have some several far-reaching goals, one of which is certainly sort of this dominance thing. First of all, they want to replace Russia as Azerbaijani's main strategic partner by being ready to provide real support in the major conflict. Besides Afghanistan, Turkey is the only country that has openly taken sides in the fight for Nagorno-Karabakh. Other sides, including Russia, either refuse to discuss the issue or demand Quote, an end to the violence and the return to the negotiating table, which basically endorses the status quo and achieves literally nothing. Secondly, Ankara might want to ensure the safety of the BTE natural gas pipeline and the BTC crude oil pipeline, which stretch from Azerbaijan to Turkey, passing near the border with Armenia, precisely where the battles took place in July 2020. Ankara relies on the BTE pipeline as an alternative to Russian national gas imports and represents a means of reducing its energy dependence on Moscow. And finally, they probably want to make Nagorno-Karabakh a bargaining chip in Turkey's geopolitical competition with Russia in northern Syria and Libya, where the partnership between Ankara and Moscow has become a dangerous rivalry, to say the least, over the past few years. And, well, there's a situation here. The Azerbaijani army is significantly bigger than the Gordo-Karabakh Republic's armed forces. According to the estimates published earlier this year by the military balance, Azerbaijan has 66,000 troops, while the breakaway in the Gordo-Karabakh military has no more than 20,000 soldiers. The latter fighting force, however, is also interconnected with the Armenian army, and some of the military equipment located in Nagorno-Karabakh really belongs to Armenia, but is available at a moment's notice to quote volunteers from the mainland who have sprung to action many times before. In a major war, Yerevan could even the odds by reinforcing Nagorno-Karabakh's standing army of 20,000 troops with its own 42,000 soldiers. If both Armenia and Azerbaijan fully mobilized, and each state has already initiated partial mobilizations in this current escalation, reservists would give Baku about 90,000 soldiers, pitting 300,000 Azerbaijani troops against 210,000 Armenian and Nagorno-Karabakh combatants. Azerbaijan also has advantage when it comes to weapons. 
Baku can field almost 500 tanks, including more than 100 relatively modern T-72s and T-90s, while Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh have roughly 100 and about 200 to 300 respectively. The ratio is about the same with artillery. Armenia does not have its own fighter aircraft and relies on the protection of a Russian Air Force group based in Gyumiri. Armenian aviation strike capacity is also weak, comprising 15 Suhoi Su-25 jets, 20 Mil Mi-24 and Mil Mi-8 attack helicopters, and Nagorno-Karabakh has about a dozen more of those, and Azerbaijan is ostensibly far stronger in the air, wielding 15 Mikoyan MiG-29s, roughly 20 Suhoi Su-25s and Suhoi Su-24s, and as many as 50 helicopters. In reality, however, Baku has big problems keeping its obsolete planes in the sky, but Turkey might have a say with that, providing them with uh, drones, and Israel, like I said, is continuously, well, selling Azerbaijan, which is far richer than Armenia, more weaponry. Azerbaijan has successfully replaced, like I said, its conventional aviation with unmanned aircraft. After the four-day war in 2016, the Azerbaijani military completed major upgrades, spending $1.6 billion on Israeli drones and anti-aircraft and missile defense systems, adding to the same arsenal that fueled Baku's victorious campaign four years ago. Azerbaijan acquired more attack drones in 2020, this time from Turkey. Unmanned attack aircraft have performed well against Russian air defense systems in Syria and Libya, which are the same defense systems now deployed in Nagorno-Karabakh. Based on new video footage released by the Azerbaijani military, Turkish drones have managed to hit air defense systems in Nagorno-Karabakh and other enemy targets. Meanwhile, Armenia is amassing its own drone arsenal, manufacturing a significant part of the equipment inside Nagorno-Karabakh and quote-unquote importing the hardware from there. Over time, Azerbaijan's technological advantage will expand. In the past two decades, Baku has spent far more on rearmament than its adversary, but Yerevan's arms expenditures have actually grown faster in recent years than Azerbaijani defense spending. Also, as a fellow member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, Armenia enjoys big discounts on Russian weapons, including relatively modern hardware like the export version of the Iskander mobile short-range ballistic missile system. In any case, the Azerbaijani military's technological superiority is, well, interestingly enough, unlikely as much as uh, my Russian opposition people would like to point it as total defeat for Armenia and Armenians fighting for own survival, no, that's not going to happen. Because Armenia is also not clear in this, and whatever they say, don't believe them. There are no good sides in this conflict, as I've tried to show you. Not Armenia, not Azerbaijan, not Turkey, and not Russia. All of this superiority is unlikely, really unlikely, to grant Azerbaijan a decisive victory in a war against Armenia in Nagorno-Karabakh. At most... Baku could reasonably expect the same minimal gains it achieved four years ago. There are also doubts about Azerbaijan's ability to use its military might to achieve major operational and strategic goals. So far, Baku has limited itself to tactical actions, capturing a village here, a hilt up there, and it's been almost 30 years since its relatively successful large-scale offensive, but we'll keep a watch on that. And I would like to specifically thank Yuri and Ivan, which are two of my military people from Russia, for giving me most of the information here. I won't mention their surnames, obviously, but hey, this is really a fun thing to do, specifically when it comes to military operations. But let's not forget that Russia also uses the soft power here, and even though the past three events, you know, Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, and Azerbaijan are the things that you might have heard lately, there's a tiny little thing called Montenegro with about 650,000 people living there. It's a NATO country. 
it lies next to the Adriatic Sea, and it's in the Balkans. It's one of the Balkan countries. And even though I didn't visit there, and I kind of feel obliged to look at that region's politics as well, and what, um, what I read about it kind of shocked me, and uh, I want to show you that sometimes overthrowing a leader that's been ruling for 20 years might not be the most democratic and nicest thing to do, because while all of this is going on, you haven't heard anything about Montenegro. And that's scarier for us Europeans here at least, maybe for us Americans too, than all the other things that have been happening. Let's get on to it. See, a recent parliamentary election in Montenegro may have attracted little notice outside the country, but it will have very outsized repercussions for the international order. Strongman president Milo Djukanovic has been in power for nearly 30 years, and surprisingly, he was at the helm of his pro-Western Democratic Party of Socialists. Uh, where have we seen that part going on? Not an ideal person, definitely, but still, for some reason he was pro-Western, joining NATO and adopting the Euro. Yes, Euro was an official currency in Montenegro even before they joined the EU. And, um, yeah, they lost their bid for re-election in the August 30th vote, although Djukanovic was still president until 2023. Taking the Democratic Party of Socialists' place is a pro-Russian and pro-Serbian-led alliance, which has given Moscow an ally not just within NATO, not just on the Adriatic Sea, but potentially within the European Union. And I think it's high time I wake you guys up, and I poke EU so that uh, everyone does something a bit to stem Russian presidents Putin's influence in the Balkans, because uh, the current elected parliament, even though, well, the previous president was a strong man and everything, he was pro-Western, and apparently, well, as I've heard, and as I've read, and as, uh, as I've asked people, it wasn't like the case of Mr. Putin, it was more like the case of Angela Merkel, where the guy was actually, seriously, just getting re-elected. Which surprises me in a bit, but yeah, honestly, well, if Angela Merkel can be in be the Chancellor of Germany for so many years, then if you think about it, then yeah, except his Democratic Party of Socialists being pro-Western with a strongman who's pro-Western, yeah, yeah, it's Montenegro, okay, I mentioned their wedding guns, just accept it as it comes to you, don't try to make sense of it, but in general, a place after an election where this strongman got thrown away got worse. For starters, uh, let me just say that, as far as I know, the new parliament, which is a coalition of things, basically want to rejoin Serbia. They're extremely pro-Serbian. They didn't even fly the Montenegrin flag in their parliament sessions and don't care about it and have disrespected it. And secondly, they don't rise up for the national anthem and didn't even play it during their first parliament session. Could you imagine that happening in any other state on the planet Earth? I mean, literally... Uh, your own parliament that does not rise for the national anthem, does not respect it, and does not give a crap about the flag, and apparently in a lot of Serbian territories on that day when the election results were there, Serbian flags were flown, because, well, why not? That's the fun part of all the situation, because they're a NATO country. They're on the Adriatic Sea. Russian boats are gonna go there. Yeah. And even though it seems very bizarre, but it's kind of true. I mean, okay, so the newly formed coalition of opposition parties who are set to lead the small Balkan state have notionally agreed to continue Djukanovic's pro-Western tilt, 
But that's unlikely to stop the massive party happening in the Kremlin at this point, disregarding Azerbaijan or whatever. The coalition's first goal, according to one of its leaders, is to lift the country's sanctions on Russia. And although much of the Montenegrin public may be cheering at the end of the Djukanovic autocratic rule, which was autocratic, yet pro-Western, yet he was also elected, and... Oh, Balkans are still in my head, I must, I must, I must accept it as it comes. Anyhow, the happiness of them is likely to be short-lived for those people who are even happy now because their small nation is just the latest Balkan domino to fall towards Moscow. Because as a long-time Moscow ally, Montenegro split from both pro-Russian Serbia and Russia in 2006, following a new pro-Western path geared toward joining NATO. Seeing NATO's expansion eastward as a threat, Russia lobbied hard to dissuade Montenegro from joining the alliance. In 2016, the Kremlin even went so far as to back a coup attempt. However, Montenegro still managed to push through, and they joined NATO in 2017. Such things aside, which were considered to be major setbacks, Russia and its political fellow travelers in Serbia continue to enjoy enormous influence in the country. Moscow remains the biggest foreign debt in Western Montenegro, and it fields the Serbian Orthodox Church as a weapon. The Serbian Orthodox Church is the main winner of all this election, you see. Putin worked through the Serbian Orthodox Church, which is also controlling Montenegro, because... Although they have their own church, they don't have the autocephaly as Ukraine had, therefore the orthodox religion in these parts of the world where religion is a super big deal, yeah, has a massive influence. So Putin worked through the church to fight Montenegro's independence from Serbia in 2006 and its NATO bid. And the new ruling coalition in uh, Podgorica, which is probably the least mentioned capital on this show, but I'll definitely be talking about them more in the future, is now dominated by an alliance of Serbian nationalist parties known as For the Future of Montenegro, which is backed by the Serbian Orthodox Church, which want to rejoin Serbia, or, at the worst case, make uh, Montenegro a NATO member country, a Serbian puppet state, which would make it a Russian puppet state. Have fun, boys! We're going in deep here. The Moscow-leading Serbian Orthodox Church not only is the largest religious institution in the Montenegro, but also hopes to position itself as one of the state's most decisive political players. The church supported the leader of For the Future of Montenegro party, Zdravko Krivokapic, and even before his election, it, it united diverse communities by organizing massive religiously political gatherings because separation of church and state, well, yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's just not a thing, really. Serbia also did its best to ensure a congenial outcome to Montenegro's elections, and Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic crowd over the results. As well as he should have. Vucic's government financed Serbian organizations in Montenegro to the tune of almost $2 million, which is a lot for, like I said, a small country of 650,000 people. Like, Latvia is almost thrice the size of that, and that's crazy. I mean, I'm not used to saying this, but hey, if, if we're bigger than someone, then that definitely is a small country, and $2 million for them... Oh, that's a lot of money. And though that money resulted in massive displays of Serbian nationalism in their capital during the election. Djukanovic accused Serbia of election meddling, which Serbia, as it has learned from Russia, totally denies. And all this bodes, well, bad news for Montenegrins, who can look forward to more nationalism and deeper divisions within their society. Democratization and development of civil society will totally and absolutely and inevitably suffer. Despite the international community's best efforts, Montenegrin politics is regressing back towards the 90s, and we all hate the 90s in Eastern Europe. Oh, trust me, no one wants the 90s back, but that's where they're going. So, the international community, I think, should pay attention to what happens in this small Balkan country, too. 
because as the Kremlin's influence expands in the Balkans, the risks of conflict grow with it. And let me remind you that every EU newspaper and everything that a reader read about it before I learned about this whole event thing and Serbia's influence there just said, oh, yay, this 30-year-old dictator is gone. Well, maybe um, in a country where there are wedding guns, maybe an authoritarian leader is not such a bad idea, specifically if he is um, less of a Stalin type and more of a, hey, let's do some democracy here type and is pro-Western. Well... You have to pick your allies, you know, specifically also in the Balkans. Montenegro is important for Russia because of its location on the Adriatic Sea, and obviously it wants a naval bases there. And I'm not really sure how much Italy wants a Russian military base just on their doorstep. Negotiating and, like, kind of nipping this down and pushing this through and kind of making sure this doesn't work out, negating Moscow's influence will require a lot of fast work. Montenegro is in negotiations to join the EU, but it has not yet done so. The process of becoming a EU member must be accelerated, obviously, and NATO itself must ensure the integrity of the Montenegrin security sector so that Russian allies don't have access to sensitive NATO information. Because they will definitely try that with their new government in place. And obviously, uh, I would personally recommend they kind of make some cybersecurity hub in Montenegro. Because obviously, otherwise, Moscow is going to do increasingly aggressive cyber intrusions and they're going to have some nice little troll farms through. And, uh, well, I think Brussels, from EU here, must also warn Serbia. In the midst of its own negotiations to join the EU, which, by the way, surprised me, because Serbia is super pro-Western, also in cultural things, but they kind of want to keep their Russian identity, and they love Putin, and they love Western stuff. The sad part is I don't think Serbia has realized that they can't have both at the same time. But yeah, Serbia must be warned that it cannot remain Russia's main foothold in the Balkans or continue its interference in Montenegrin politics, because after a US brokered deal that normalized economic ties between Kosovo and Serbia earlier this month and as a consequence angered the Kremlin, the United States National Security Council congratulated Vucic on his courage to confront Russia. Serbia's relationship with Montenegro will be the litmus test for whether or not Serbia is shifting its foreign policy goals toward the West, or whether or not they're an infiltrator sent to destroy people from within. In 2018, after the occasion of Montenegro's NATO's extension, United States President Donald Trump infamously warned that defending a small NATO ally in Montenegro could lead to World War III. And our leaders here in the EU are also well-known for their reluctance in managing conflicts in their ever-growing neighborhood, but... We would do well to recall that a 90s crisis in the Balkans resulted in the bloodiest conflict Europe had seen since World War II, and now we have something similar in Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh, and... Yeah. This is kind of stupid, because everything that's happening could just might lead Europe into World War III, but not in the case like it happened in World War II. I'm looking more like a World War I scenario. When shit really got out of hand. And that would be just something that I don't want to happen completely. Anyhow, this episode has been extra long and things are not looking great. 2020 has been, and I'll be blatant here, a shit year. Even though I managed to have a brilliant vacation over there in the Balkans, if you look at the political spectrum, oh man, it's bad. Let's hope the next year gets better. And we're going to turn to history in the next episode... But so far, well, at least all I can do is keep you informed and make sure that if you have some political gatherings or you speak with your friends about politics, don't forget these issues. 
because no one wants a World War III. Anyhow, do свидания, товарищи. And see you next time. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.